Good evening. Please turn with me to Acts 1. Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He who has ears, let him hear the word of God. This evening we're going to begin a new sermon series, a new study through the book of Acts. And I can't really think of another sermon series that could be so helpful to us in our current society than the book of Acts. And that really is the explosion of the gospel upon the world. The book of Acts is commonly called the Acts of the Apostles because it largely focuses upon the apostles and the early church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And though it does largely focus upon those apostles, a better suited name probably would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts really is the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now the book of Acts is a historical record of the work of the Holy Spirit who was sent forth by both the Father and the Son after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So when we look at the book of Acts and we consider its, its genre, the, the type of book that it is, it's quite clear that it's an historical account. In it we see the history of, of the growth and the, the expansion of this early New Testament church. And there was a piece of advice that I was given several years ago when I was a young Christian, and I took it to heart. And I can say that it has greatly impacted my Christian life. I was told that if you want to continue to grow and to mature in your Christian faith, if you want to grow in your love for the triune God of Scripture, for his love, for his, for his word, and if you want to grow in assurance of, of God's faithfulness to his people, you need to develop a love of history. I considered it good advice at the time. And years later, I can say without hesitation that it is, in fact, some of the best advice that I've ever received. That is to develop a love for history. Well, why is that? Why is the study of history so important to the Christian life? Now, when I was young, I can definitively say that I abhorred 
the study of history. I did not enjoy it in the least. But that's largely because I attended a, a government school that divorced history from the divine. History was just a series of sequential events that occurred in the past that had no relevance to me. That was my view of history. Why would I need to study this? Why would I care about what happened before I was alive? What relevance does it have to me? However, it was only after the Lord had saved me that I realized that history really isn't just a sequential series of events that occurred in the past. Rather, history is the testimony of God's works in his world. That's what history is. It is a testimony of the faithfulness of God. History is the, the record of God's redemptive history, his, his plan of salvation for those whom he has called to himself. And it was when I realized that, that my love for history exploded and I grew in my Christian faith. Along with that advice, to develop a, a true love of, of history, I was taught that it would be beneficial to provide a foundation for me of what was called the three E's. By studying history, I would be edified, I would be equipped, and I would be encouraged. Edified, equipped, and encouraged. By way of edification, the study of history gives knowledge of the unfolding plan of God. And we are built up by those who have come before us so that we will learn and we will carry on the same message to new generations. And that is the message of the gospel. Second, it equips us to, to rightly uphold the truth revealed in Scripture and to defend it. And thirdly, it encourages us. It contains countless testimonials of, of men and women who have lived in both prosperous times and dangerous times. There are times in history when Christianity was the, the chief religion of many nations, and there are times in history where Christians were being persecuted at Mass for confessing Jesus is Lord. And we may draw encouragement from those who have gone before us, knowing that Christ will not leave his bride unprotected. It shows his tender care toward his people. So you have these three E's, edification, equip, and encouragement. And I say these things to you because the book of Acts is a historical book. But it's not just any historical book. Acts is a divinely inspired historical book. So if I can't convince you on the, the necessity of reading and embracing history, I can at least get you to listen intently to this historical account because it is God-breathed. So let's look at how Acts prepares us to live in this world as Christians. How does it edify us? How does it equip us? 
And how does it encourage us? It encourages us in this way. The book of Acts is the unfolding proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity was the great revealing and the great fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. After the fall, you have God promising there in Genesis 3.15 that an offspring would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And that was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. It was promised to Abraham that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. And that was fulfilled, the coming of Jesus. It was told to David that, that a king would rise up from his posterity, and he would be an eternal king, and that he would rule forever, and he would sit on the throne forever. And this, of course, again, was fulfilled by the eternal reigning King Jesus. Prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled in the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we are instructed on all these throughout the book of Acts. By way of equipping, Acts prepares us to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and to, to give an, a defense of the faith. Early in the book, the apostles taught vehemently against unbelieving Jews who, who denied that Jesus was the incarnation and the, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And you have those early sermons in Acts. And they, they were intended to tell those unbelieving Jews that Christ is who he says he is, that Jesus is the fulfillment And that gospel proclamation rang out, and it did not return void. Men were cut to the heart at the preaching of Christ. And all throughout the book, you have persecution continuing to rise at the hands of the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. But that did not deter those Christians. The message went out to those Jews and it did not return void. The message went out to the Gentiles, and it did not return void. The Gentiles were a religious people, but they knew nothing of the Old Testament promises. Their worship was in Artemis and the Greek gods or the gods of Egypt, mystery cults and religions, the philosophies of men, but this did not hinder the gospel message. Offered to these Gentiles was an apology. Not the sorry apology, but the, the defense of the faith apology. And we are to do likewise in our day. By our study of the book of Acts, we too can learn how to properly defend the gospel. And the book of Acts is also a demonstration of, of those early New Testament believers carrying out that great commission. You know, that great commission there in Matthew 28, when the Lord says, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts is a record of those early Christians who went to those nations and carried out what Christ commanded, that great commission. The book of Acts is largely a collection of sermons. There are some 19 discourses that demonstrate how the apostles preached, how they witnessed, and how they made a defense of the faith. There are 19 discourses found in Acts. And it's estimated that if you were to calculate the, the total verse count in Acts, one out of every four verses contain either a sermon, a strong witness, or a defense of the faith. Now, that's pretty incredible. This book really is about the proclamation of the gospel and the defense of it. And it really does demonstrate how the Spirit works so powerfully, converting whole regions and eventually whole nations. It was the preaching of the gospel that, that was the instrument by which the Spirit used to bring about conversion, this gospel message. It was the foolishness of, of preaching that upended the world. And you have there in, in Hebrews 4, it says of the word of God that it is living and it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it even penetrates as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And what do we find throughout the book? That man is pierced to the heart by the proclamation of the word of God. Man is pierced by the word of God. You know, one of the greatest recoveries made during the Protestant Reformation was the necessity and the centrality of preaching. It's not talked about nearly as much as, as justification by faith alone, which is a wonderful, blessed doctrine. But there really was a focus on the centrality of the preached word of God. And it, it's no coincidence that from the time of the recovery of the preaching of the word of God until now, that there's been an explosion of awakenings and conversions all over the world. It's not a coincidence. And you know, we, we do lament in our day that preaching is beginning to look more like self-help suggestions than the exposition and application of the Word of God. It's also no coincidence that when the Word of God is left unpreached, wickedness and moral decay grows. So you see a decline in the preached Word of God, you see a decline in the culture. You see moral decay and collapse. Our forefathers really understood this that the preached word of God was the centerpiece of the church's regular worship. It is the preached word of God. Take Calvin, for example. His sermons were verse-by-verse verse exposition of the word of God. He walked through the word of God verse-by-verse. Verse. They were text-driven, set in their proper context, and preached passionately and fervently. 
You know, during his time in Geneva, he had delivered over 4,000 sermons. That's mind-blowing, 4,000 sermons that he preached while in Geneva. Calvin's, Calvin's labor in, in preaching the word of God was used by the Spirit to make Geneva what it was. Geneva wasn't perfect, but it was Christian. Now, John Knox said of, of Calvin's Geneva, he said, I neither fear nor am ashamed to say that Geneva is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in earth since the days of the apostles. In other places, I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion so sincerely reformed, I have not seen in any other place. That was what John Knox said of Calvin's Geneva. Why was Geneva the way it was? The preached word of God. 4,000 sermons just from Calvin alone in Geneva. It was a preached word of God that, that was central there in Geneva. And it's said that if you look at Calvin's preaching, listen, you find it to be biblical in substance, sequential in its pattern, direct in its message, extemporaneous in its delivery, exegetical in its approach, accessible in its simplicity, pastoral in its tone, polemic in its defense of the truth, passionate in its outreach, and doxological in its conclusion. That's what the sermons were. And you know, when you study the book of Acts, and, and we're going to see these sermons as we go through, you know what you're going to find? The exact same thing. You're going to find the exact same thing in the book of Acts that Calvin took to heart. These sermons, witnesses, and Apologetical defenses here in Acts require a response. It's as if to say, this is the message. This is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is the Christ. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So Acts prepares us to proclaim this same message in whatever circumstance we're in. The proclamation of the word of God is the heartbeat of the book of Acts. It was the heartbeat of the Reformation, and it's the heartbeat today. Finally, by way of encouragement, Acts encourages us by giving us examples of our forefathers of the faith who began to suffer for the sake of Christ. You know, you have the, the first New Testament martyr, Stephen, who confronted the religious leaders of the day and was stoned to death. The apostles were persecuted and murdered at the proclamation of the gospel. Listen to Paul's testimony here in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. 
I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor, I've been in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these external things, there is this daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That was Paul's life. When I read that, I think I've suffered very, very little. Yet all these beatings that Paul took, all of these imprisonments, all of these daily struggles did not deter him from the one gospel message. It fueled him. You know, it was recorded later uh, by Augustine of Hippo. It said, The earth has been filled with the blood of the martyr as the seed, and from that seed have sprung the crops of the church. They have asserted Christ's cause more effectively when dead than when they were alive. They assert it today. They preach him today. Their tongues are silent. Their deeds echo around the world. They were arrested, bound, imprisoned, brought to trial, tortured, burned at the stake, stoned to death, run through, fed to wild beasts. In all their kinds of death, they were jeered at as worthless. But precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. The persecution of the early church did the opposite of what was intended. Instead of destruction, the church thrived. So we can be encouraged during times where it appears that the, the Christian message has been diminished upon the earth or in our land. We may know that the Lord will protect his bride and will cause her to thrive. So now looking at our text here in Acts 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This introduces us to the fact that, that the author has written previously. The author of Acts is Luke. Luke was the physician to Paul and a historian who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Now, the first account of which Luke speaks here is, of course, the Gospel according to Luke. And contained in that gospel is the work of Jesus, all that he had began to do and to teach. In the opening salutation of that gospel, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the world, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So in the first account, the Gospel of Luke, Luke records the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And in the second account, you have the coming of the Holy Spirit to apply what Christ had accomplished. And we see the pouring out of the Spirit 
and the message spread like wildfire. That's the testimony of the book of Acts. In Acts 1, verse 8, you really have the, the theme of the book or the, or the power behind all the events that took place. And that theme is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that really is the, the power behind the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, remember that it is this coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 8 that propels the whole thing, this coming of, of power by the Spirit. And this really is the whole thrust of the book. It's not just the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. So you have two books. You have two accounts. You have the Gospel of Luke and the, and the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. One consisting of the work of Christ and the other consisting of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's always been amazing to me that when you read Luke and then you go to Acts, it's always been amazing to see the radical change that happens in the disciples of Jesus. You read the book of Acts and then you go, or Luke, and then you go straight to Acts, and it's mind blowing the change that occurs there. You know, near the the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. His disciples were perplexed and confused and fearful and downtrodden. They didn't know quite what to make of what had just happened. They had just witnessed their teacher die. They were a bit lost. You think about all that had happened. You had Peter denying knowing Jesus. You had Thomas doubting the resurrection. And you kind of get the sense as, as you read through that, that they, that they have this attitude that almost like all is lost. Like what we have believed, has, is it gone? Was it, was it true? Was this the, the true account? But a transformation took place in their lives. They went from being perplexed and fearful and downtrodden to being bold and downright courageous. Now, part of it certainly was the resurrection of Christ. They, they see the risen Jesus. But the primary instrument of their radical transformation was the coming of the Holy Spirit that testified to Christ. Do you realize that we possess that same Spirit? It's not as though that the, the apostles had some sort of ultra-powerful Holy Spirit, and we have some sort of second-tier spirit within us. We're indwelled by the same Holy Spirit, the exact same Spirit. As Christians, we have the Spirit which transformed and upended nations. Well, it was at this time that the, the apostles saw clearly who Jesus was, and that he was the fulfillment of every prophecy, and the fulfillment of, of the covenant of redemption. Now think about it. While Jesus was here on earth with them, they really couldn't see clearly, could they? They really struggled. 
there were frequent arguments over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They couldn't understand that the Christ had to die for his people. Take Peter, for example. One of Peter's best moments occurred in Matthew 15, uh, 16. When asked by Jesus, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Well, the disciples reported to, to him that some say that he's John the Baptist. Some say that he's Elijah or one of the prophets. And then you have Jesus saying, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, that you are, you are the Son of the living God. And at this confession, Jesus pronounced a blessing upon Peter because the truth was revealed to him, not by a persuasive argument, but by the Father. And you read that and you, you think, okay, they're finally getting it. Peter gets it. Peter knows whom he is serving. But then just a few verses later, when Jesus is telling them of, of his necessary death, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Now think of those words. God forbid it. He's saying, may the, may the Father forbid your death. Lord, and Jesus, Jesus responds to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So then you're kind of like, okay, maybe he doesn't quite really get it yet. But in Acts, it's quite different. You really see the apostles grasping the big picture. In Acts 2, Peter is almost unrecognizable. You read Peter's sermon there. You, you think about what Peter just said, what I just said, and then the sermon that we're going to look at here in a couple weeks. He's almost a different person. He's unrecognizable. He is proclaiming the very thing he couldn't understand prior to the death and resurrection of Christ and prior to the, the coming of the Spirit. There he said, God forbid that you die. And then the sermon in Acts 2 is the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection. So it had been fully revealed to him. But they not, they not only began to, to see these things, but to proclaim it. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And let me tell you, once it became clear to them, once they realized who Jesus is and what that meant, his resurrection, they could not be stopped. There was no deterring them. They were going to proclaim, whether by life or by death, all that Jesus has said and done of his, per of his person and his work on behalf of sinners. Our text says that this book, the book of Acts here, is written to Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was also the primary audience of the Gospel of Luke. And that name, I love that name, it consists of two words, which is theos, which means God, and philia, which means love. So this man was loved by God. That's his name. And Theophilus was a commissioner of Luke who undoubtedly helped fund this historical expedition of recording both of what Jesus began to do and to teach and what happened afterwards. 
Now, there's some speculation as to the, the rank of this man. You know, Luke's usage there in uh, the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke is most excellent Theophilus. And that sort of suggests that he, he was a high-ranking official. But in any case, it's evident that Theophilus wanted a recorded eyewitness testimony from those who witnessed Jesus. He wanted to know all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It's likely that he needed assurance in the truthfulness of the message that was being proclaimed. And he received that in fullness. You know, I think of the, the two men from Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. I love this story. The text says that they were walking on the road and that they were downtrodden because of the death of their teacher. You know, they were really struggling. Now, these two men were obviously disciples that had learned from Jesus. But they, they couldn't wrap their minds around what had just happened. So they're walking on this road, and the risen Jesus approaches them and asks this question, what are you exchanging with one another as you're walking? And we're told that these two men were prevented from seeing the, the true identity of Jesus, so they began to explain all that had happened, that, that Jesus the Nazarene, who was a, a prophet mighty indeed and, and word in the sight of God and all the people, was delivered up to death by the chief priests and the rulers. And they were saddened because they were hoping that it was he that would redeem Israel. No doubt this was on the minds of all the disciples, of the most excellent Theophilus. But then Jesus explained to him, to them, he said, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself from the scriptures. Jesus explained to them concerning himself and how he was the fulfillment of the promise from God. He explained to them that he is the Redeemer of Israel. And Luke records that Jesus stayed with them for a while longer and eventually their eyes were opened and they, they recognized their teacher. And I love their testimony. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Were our hearts not burning as he was speaking? And they arose fully assured of the truth that the Messiah, that Jesus, rose from the dead. Luke records here in our text that his first accounts consisted of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The book of Luke begins with the foretelling of the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. And Luke traces that early ministry work of Jesus. You have the, his baptism there in Luke 3. You see the, the Trinity revealed you have the, the temptation of, of Jesus and his ministry in Galilee. And Luke says that he returned to Galilee in, in power of the Spirit. And news about him spread around the surrounding district. He called disciples. 
He healed paralytics and lepers, men who were blind. He declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and he preached the greatest sermon ever preached, the Beatitudes. He gave parables. He stilled the sea. He instructed his disciples how to pray. He spoke words of woe against those who twisted the gospel of grace. He called men and women to repent of their sins and to place their faith in him. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He was betrayed, arrested, crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day. And then he appeared, as it says in our text in verse 3, for a period of 40 days and spoke to them the things that concerns the kingdom. And there in verses 2 and 3, Luke writes, Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom. He spent his last days on earth preparing his apostles for the work that was to come. By studying the book of Acts, we too will be prepared not to be apostles, but to be witnesses to that truth. This is the message of Acts. This is the testimony of this God-inspired book. That we have a first-hand account of that message going forth in power to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have part in that, beloved. We have part in that work. To be witnesses to the risen Lord. It's the same gospel that we proclaim. The gospel that was proclaimed in Acts is the same gospel that we proclaim today. I've already mentioned this once before. I'll mention it again here. You have Isaiah 55:11. God says, So will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I sent it. His word will not return void. The book of Acts is a testimony of that that God's word will not return void. His word is not like the words of men, which is often vain and bankrupt. You know, Paul says that, that God's gospel, the gospel of God, his gospel, the gospel that he owns, is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, it is the power of God for salvation. The message is proclaimed throughout Acts. And Luke records men and women coming to faith at the preaching of this gospel. I want to take just a minute to define that message because there is only one message that truly turned the world upside down. There are many messages, but there is one that turned the world upside down, and that is of the gospel. The gospel means good news. And the good news is the solution to bad news. 
The gospel addresses the most serious problem that we have as human beings. And we have many problems. But there is only one problem that is so serious that it is deadly, if not remedied. And it is this, that when I die and when you die, we will stand before the holy God acting as our judge. Now, beloved, there's only two ways that encounter will go. Either the most righteous and holy judge will look at me and will look at you and will judge us on the basis of our good works. Or he will look at me, he will look at you, and he will judge us based on the works of another. It's the only two ways it can go. Now the bad news is that you and I have no good works. That's the bad news. We have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. If God were to look at an account of our lives, if we were to give him an account of our lives, we would be found guilty. But the good news of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus. It was this gospel proclaimed in Acts. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, and he fulfilled the demands of the law for his people. He bore our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. And this is the great exchange. So when we stand before the judgment seat of God, he will look at us and he will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the message. That's the gospel. That is the objective gospel. That is the gospel proper. But there is also this subjective dimension to the gospel, and it's this. What are the benefits of Christ? given to us? How are they appropriated to us? And the Bible is emphatically clear on this. So clear that, that Paul would announce an anathema even on himself if he told you anything different. The benefits of Christ are given to us as a free gift and received by faith alone. We are not justified by our works. We are not justified by the keeping of the law or by the works of the law. No one will be justified, cannot be justified that way. The only way we can stand before a holy God is by wearing the righteousness of another. And Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the greatness of Jesus argued all throughout the book of Hebrews is that he is the one who shed his blood and offered himself to bear the sins of many. You know, I'm thankful that the gospel has been preached here at Bridwell for decades. Decades we have had the gospel preached faithfully. But I'm reminding you of the principles of the gospel for a particular reason at the outset of our study of the book of Acts. There is only one gospel. There is one gospel. And any other gospel cannot save or convert anyone. The gospel that was preached in Acts is the gospel. It's the same gospel we preach today. If the gospel of grace is not preached or proclaimed as God has given it, it will fall on deaf ears. A false gospel, a distorted gospel, 
has no dynamo, no power. It's only God's gospel and his alone that can save men and women from their sins. There's only one gospel that has power. And that gospel message must be preserved and presented anew to every generation. That we are justified by faith alone. And that we receive the righteousness of Christ. It is imputed to us. That gospel must be defended. It must be proclaimed. One addition or one, subs- one subtraction leads to a false gospel. One compromise and the whole thing is lost. R.C. Sproul once said that without the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the gospel is not merely compromised, it's lost altogether. An error here, and the gospel is lost. So as we go, we're going to see accounts of, of signs and wonders done by the Spirit through the apostles to confirm the truthfulness of the message. And, and we believe that the, those signs and wonders have ceased. But you know what has not ceased? God's gospel and the power that it contains. Signs and wonders have ceased. The power of the gospel has never ceased. It's still every bit as powerful and potent as it was in 33 AD. It is the power of God for salvation. You know, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, to proclaim that gospel message. What God has done for us and in us, and he works through us to to expand his kingdom and calling his elect out of their sins and into saving faith. That's what he does. Now, in the, the broad evangelical community, the gospel is sometimes confused with our testimony. You know, maybe you've been the person to do this, I have, or, or maybe you've heard others do this. When, when someone says, I was able to witness to someone today, or I was able to share the gospel with someone, if you dig a little deeper, you may find out what was communicated was that person's own personal testimony or the benefits that they have by being a Christian. And those testimonies are great. God gives us these things. The work of God in our lives is something that we ought to share with people. But it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is not about me or you. The gospel is about God and what he's done. So it's my hope as we go throughout this series of the book of Acts and we hear this gospel message proclaimed and we we read of the work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to that proclamation and we see persecutions increasing in order to, to dampen the spread of the gospel but only igniting it. As we go through this, that, that we would be like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That our hearts would burn within us as we spend time in God's word. And that it would motivate us to proclaim the same message that turned the world upside down. That is the gospel of Christ. I said this morning as we went through Ecclesiastes 8 and Sunday school, 
that there is much to lament about the state of our society. There is much evil that occurs in our day. And we must push back on those evils. But if you want to see change, you must give men and women the only message that will bring about change. That's the gospel. You must give the gospel. The gospel can never be divorced from saying, thus saith the Lord. So that is my hope as we begin this study of the book of Acts, that we will, we will see the wondrous works of God in creation and in history. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this time in your word. We ask that you would bless this study of the book of Acts and that you would give us wisdom and give us ears to hear as we study. In Christ.